0: Welcome to the Lower Life Podcast, where we seek to navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. In this season four, we focus on big ideas that will change our profession. And on today's episode, we discuss anti-racism. We're asking ourselves how we can adapt our worldview and create sustainable change. I am Mike Anderson,
1: and I'm Darlene Tanelli.
0: Hello, Darlene.
1: Hello. How are you? Happy
0: afternoon. We're recording in the afternoon, which is different for us. It's very. I still different. have a coffee even though it's getting late in the day. It's a cold coffee, which I still drink. So there you go.
1: Okay. Little insight.
0: I know. Very interesting stuff.
1: Very interesting. <laughs> How have you been? I've been okay. I've been okay. I'm I'm ready for the summer. And I have been just really in a phase of learning, using all I've got a bit of extra time at the moment, it feels like. And I've been devoting a lot of that to just trying to get Come through this pandemic on the other side, more educated, more empathetic, more understanding. Use my time for the purposes of good. That's what I'm working on, and what this episode is uh, is about today.
0: On this point, for the podcast, we're very lucky today because we have like a preeminent voice on this subject, and we're super lucky to have her. So, do you think I should just start the introduction to Hadia? Yes. Yes. Great. So. Today's guest is Hadia Rodrique. She is a lawyer, researcher, and broadcast commentator. An award-winning writer, she has bylines in The Walrus, The National Post, and Macleans, among others. She's well-known for her piece, Black on Bay Street, that was in the Globe and Mail, and that outlined her experience as a young Black woman working in a Bay Street firm. She's currently a PhD candidate in organizational behavior at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where her research focuses on gender and parental bias in the workplace. In 2018, Hadia was named one of Canada's Top 25 Most Influential Lawyers by Canadian Lawyers Magazine. And without further ado, here is Hadia Rodrique. Hello, Hadia.
2: Hi. I should probably correct my own bio. I actually have my PhD now. There it and is. Yeah. Dr.
1: Rodriguez. Doctor. Yeah. Dr. Doctor. Congratulations. It has a nice ring to it.
2: Yeah. My dad still thinks I'm not the right kind of doctor, but I think he'll be okay. <laughs>
0: So, wait, your dad was, I know, uh, going through some interviews with you and stuff, obviously, and, and your articles, obviously, monumentally proud of you when you got into law school and became a lawyer. But now he's giving you crap about what kind of I'm doctor you were? Well, so I think he just,
2: he never got his MD. Mm-hmm. I feel like Caribbean parents, they want that MD. I would have been the third MD in my family, though. So I felt like it was already played out. And I mean, I'm the only PhD in my entire extended family. So I feel like. That's still an accomplishment, and my dad is very proud. I'm, I'm joking, but uh, <laughs> he was like, "Oh, you're going to go to med school now?" I was like, "No, I think I'm done. I think I have enough der- I think four is enough degrees." Um, it's a lot of degrees. I did, I did think about it when the pandemic hit. I'm like, "Ooh, epidemiology. That's kind of interesting." <laughs> but I was no, you're not allowed to go to school anymore. You are done. You have to start working a real job. So
1: here I am. Well, thank you for coming on. We we loved your article. We love your dad. Mike and I both spoke before you jumped on today. We were saying we just love the role that he played when you read the article. And obviously, never mind the pride that he has, but he was really a factor in sort of encouraging you and telling you how awesome you were from a very early age. And Mike and I both feel like that's a key factor, right? Just have someone who totally believes in you and pushes you and that gets you into these great spots. So What was your, when you went to law school, what was your thinking then? I'm asking in the context of this, this time when we're bringing you here, because we want to hear your thoughts on what needs to be done to change the system. And I I wondered in preparing for this interview, was it your goal when you went to law school to change the system at all? So no, I
2: wrote the LSAT simply because writing the MCAT seemed way harder. And, uh, I was one of those people who luckily the LSAT came very naturally to, so like I studied for a week, that kind of person. And, a week? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so I've taught, I've actually taught the LSAT for 14 years and my students always ask me what I scored and how long I studied. And I just like, I don't want to tell you because it's going to make you depressed. Um. I mean, the first time I wrote the test for fun in the guidance counselor's office, I got a 172. So I was like, I think I'm supposed (gasps) to go to law school. (laughs) And literally, that is the reason why I went to law school, because I did well on the test. And it seemed like a good plan. I had already gotten into a PhD program in psychology at Stanford. And then I decided not to do that, because I decided, it seemed like when I went on the tours, and um, for grad school, that people seemed really passionate about what they were going to do, and I was just doing it because I was good in, at psych, and I didn't know what else to do with the psych degree, and so I kind of ended up in the law by accident. And I originally wanted to be an IP lawyer because um, I was a singer and a musician and a scientist. So I did a bachelor's in essentially neuroscience, and so that was my initial plan. And I did some internships while at law school at Sony Records and add another music label. So I was actually going down that route. And then ended up in in a big firm in labor and employment. The real circuitous route to to the law.
1: Well, you're kind of a renaissance woman, which is interesting because we we talk on this podcast a lot with lawyers who are very who have an interesting perspective for a bunch of different reasons. And one of the common threads that we find is that people who are speaking critically about the profession, often have a bunch of different perspectives, just educationally, academically, as well as lifestyle. And, and from, from your perspective, it's interesting to me how quickly you went in and saw kind of the cracks in the system and, and wrote about them. And I think your article made a huge impact. So, yeah. for people who haven't read the article, would you mind giving like a bit of a summary of what, you're, what you were talking about there? And then we'll transition into today.
2: Sure. I did want to bring up one thing kind of a the current moment in my decision to go to law school. So I had to choose between going to like the Harvards and the Stanfords versus staying in Canada. And one of the reasons I chose like I went to visit the US um and it just felt like a it just felt too weird to be there. Um and I was like I have to choose between guns and racism or just racism. I'm gonna choose the latter because that seemed a bit safer. It seemed safer to stay in Canada. Not the can. I mean, Canada has its own problems with racism, but gun violence and the proliferation of guns is just not as bad as it is in the states. There are pretty lax gun laws. Um, when it comes to the article, so in the article, the article was a not supposed to be about me when I first started writing it. It was supposed to be about Bay Street hiring, and I'm a procrastinator at heart. And so when I sat down to write the paper. The piece with a three-day deadline, a different story came out and ended up being my story. And then over the course of editing the piece, my editor asked me to put more of myself into it and more of my father into it. So I actually interviewed my father while I was writing the piece and put some of that material into the piece. But I, in the piece, wrote about my experiences as a young Black woman, some of my childhood experiences some of the ways that I had to deal with other people's perceptions about what being black is and what being what black, what black people are capable of. And, and then I described the interview process and then my evolution at the firm and then my decisions to leave. And so it's a, almost a sense of the state of inclusion, I'd say, in
0: big firms in Canada. And that, like, sent... Obviously, shockwaves. Like it, I think it made a, a big impact and had broad reach, especially across the legal profession in Canada. Yeah. Do you the, feel the
2: smart? They put that out two days before uh, interview week, which I had right. totally forgotten about. Um, <laughs> right. I guess someone had someone had clued them in, and right. uh, I had I had forgotten about about interview weeks and the timing. So it was a it was a shock to me how how much it went viral.
0: Yeah. And in that way, I mean, I'm curious about what the feedback was then that you got and whether you see that it's had a lasting impact, because we're talking about in the context of a big moment, obviously, here where a lot of people are engaged in an issue, kind of in a way similar to the way that the legal profession was with your article. And the challenge is, and the thing we want to focus on today is how folks can make sure that they're engaging in long term systemic change instead of just engaging with something quickly and getting out. So. What was what did you see happen in the example of your article?
2: The save me response was overwhelmingly positive. Being a black woman on the internet, you're talking about race, uh, you open yourself up to the possibility getting hate mail. I didn't get any. I did get two mansplaining emails. Um, one person told me that I should have stayed in the law instead of shouting from the rafters where nobody would hear me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're writing to me, so I'm definitely <laughs> being heard and Yeah, so that I got a positive response. I got a lot of emails and um, tweets and messages. A piece was shared 13,000 times on Facebook in the first week. Uh, There was a video that accompanied it. It was shared 200, it was watched 250,000 times in the first week. And, you know, people will tell me that that's what people were talking about um, during that week of hiring. But to be honest, I am not aware of it leading to much. Actual change, um, I do think law firms are probably a bit cagey in, in sharing what they're doing with others, and I think also in in the Bay Street legal profession, there's a wariness to be the first to do anything. I think some firms are more avant-garde than others, and I do know that Lenzner Platt, for example, a litigation firm in Toronto, did introduce an anonymized resume process, and I know of one or two other firms that have introduced a standardized question in their process but otherwise I'm not aware of of much global change and the other thing I find interesting is that you have a a lot of companies right now saying they're going to do more but in the law like I told you guys about this stuff two and a half years ago you should have been doing things already and I'm not sure that those things are being done
1: well, the thing that I remember and something that we've done a previous episode on when it comes to the legal profession is this concept of just the daily microaggressions. You had a line in your article that has stuck with me, basically speaking to what you mentioned about Canada. Overt acts of racism are rare. Instead, the subtle ones tire you out and wear your sense of belonging. So that was an issue that we were twigged to. And you twigged us to it, frankly. And Catherine Chang, who's been a guest on our podcast as well. And now, I guess the thing for me is that belonging and that, that sort of sense of not fitting in, how now when we see something that's actually, we're dealing with an atrocity and systemic racism and police brutality, now it seems like we need to really up the, like we already have an issue with belonging. How do we deal with this tougher, more gritty and this atrocity? How do we, how do we get there? How do you see them connected? I mean,
2: they all stem from the same place of anti-black racism. It's just the the degree. So, you know, the the murders; and those things are incredibly those are incredibly violent, and they're things that you can you can see and people can latch onto. But the more subtle discrimination is the stuff that happens to you every single day. So, you might not be shot, but you are dealing with having to deal with other people's. You know, inane comments and flights on a daily basis, and that um, in a workplace context, that really can add up. You know, no one was was calling me the N word in the hallways of a large Bay Street firm, but there were other things that, like collectively, you know, make you feel like you don't belong.
0: Yeah, and that that's one of those things that, for folks that are not people of color, unless you start to engage and look for that sort of stuff, or Absorb the information that's given to you from a person that's receiving that sort of treatment. Largely, it's a blind spot, and I know from reading your article and engaging in other things, you start to understand the the weight and the toll that something like that would take. I mean, if every single time I was in a meeting room, there was a question as to whether folks there felt I belonged, things like that, I feel like my career would be drastically different. And so, are there are there ways that folks who don't experience these things can start to build kind of that architecture of empathizing with people in this scenario?
2: I mean, reading books and listening to people's experiences with racism and microaggressions probably be helpful, but I think I would challenge you on people not knowing. I would say most of the time when I have experienced a microaggression and someone has stood there and been silent, they know exactly what's happening they're just choosing not to say anything because it's easier. And I would reckon that most people can think about a time when somebody else was made to feel shitty and that you didn't say anything. You've all lived very long lives and I can I can bet with almost 100% certainty that most people can recall at least one instance where they didn't say anything and where something happened. So I would I would right. I would challenge you on that needing to learn empathy. We find it super easy to empathize with lots of people and lots of things. Why is this any harder or any different? And I think a lot of people just have chosen not to empathize because it's a lot easier and because they don't want to confront um, the actual structural power imbalance that leads to other people having a different experience from them. But it's not like people are just realizing for the first time that racism is a real thing. If, If you are, you've gotten through 40 years of life and have not realize that structural racism, racism exists, like, where have you been? Where have you been living? Uh, what have you been reading? What have you been seeing? Cause I, I, I would just find it very hard to believe that someone could reach adulthood and not know that racism is real.
0: Yes. I, and thank you for that challenge. And and I will gladly accept it. And, and I think that it's perfectly placed because I know for me in my learning very much I'm understanding the difference between not being racist and being an anti-racist, yeah. right? And so understanding that in that scenario that you paint, if someone before me receives a microaggression, not being racist, like just being a not, not racist person, silence. And it, yeah. maybe not even is, is of course, but being an anti-racist is a person who will speak out. And that's where we're trying to to focus a good portion of the conversation today, because, that is a way to actually affect change and the silence is the issue and silence is the thing that perpetuates the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think
2: a lot of people don't realize that inaction is also not a good thing. They think, well, I haven't done anything actively racist, but if you're not acting and upholding a system, then you are not anti-racist. You're still contributing to the system by, by choosing to let it continue to
1: to progress the way that it it does. And why do you think people, so let's, I agree with you, I don't think it is ignorance. Why do you think people don't speak up? It's hard. It's hard to speak up. People don't want to put themselves out there.
2: People are afraid. People are afraid of being judged or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And, you know, I think a lot of people are, you know, rightly or wrongly, generally self-interested human beings looking out for their own uh, well being and, and, and so it's often seemingly easier to say nothing or do nothing. Um confronting a system is a is a big challenge. Um especially if it's a system that has deep roots and
1: it's work. It's and it's working sometimes people don't want to do work. I also think that there's a worry of and I whether this is conscious or not, I think it's sort of it's along the lines of just not wanting to lose your stuff. Like if we go back to childhood and being the kid on the playground that is not being bullied, and you're just sometimes so glad you're not being bullied. And I think that's a real thing that everyone can understand. But for me, that has been top of mind as I've been watching this play out and considering how we could respond and how we could change our, our thinking and behavior going forward, as Mike said, to be more on the side of anti-racist, not just trying not being racist it seems like to me it's almost like a muscle to be to be worked on to just be the type of person who stands up and says things that make other people uncomfortable and might me uncomfortable and it's for yeah. me that's the muscle that's what it is it's like oh i'm used to this world in which i just everyone's comfortably talking it's this white fragility concept which i actually heard about from you first i think on twitter And I've since read about, and I think everyone should read about it and learn that uh, we have the luxury of getting to have comfortable conversations about it that are abstract, but it doesn't seem like in that situation that you're describing, other than education and getting comfortable and knowing that you can speak out and make a mistake and maybe be wrong, maybe get some online shade, Mm -hmm. um, it's still worth it. Is that yes. fair to say? Like, it's, is it better to say the wrong thing than nothing? I think so. I mean, you're not going to grow from saying nothing. You can grow from
2: saying the wrong thing, then having a discussion about it, learning what the right thing is, and not doing that again. And so you are going to mess up in your anti-racist journey. Everybody's going to mess up. No one's perfect. You know, no one's gone on a bike when they were five and was immediately Clara Hughes. Um, even Clara Hughes wasn't Clara Hughes when she was five. But you're not gonna get anywhere if you don't move. You know, it's like you're, if you if you can either choose to tread water in the middle of the lake, or you can you can choose to swim. And swimming's gonna be hard, but it's gonna be worth it. Your muscles are gonna get stronger. You're gonna become a better swimmer. So I I, I think that 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 is the best option. And another thing is, I think when it comes to equality, there is this sensation that people think that they're gonna be losing something. But what do you lose when less people get shot? By the cops, like what? What is the loss to you if we have equality? If we have less police brutality against black bodies? It's not like we're trying to drag people down to the way that black people are treated. We're trying to lift everybody up to the same place. So why do you feel like it's a loss for other people to be treated with the same humanity that you get? Uh, like that's something I'd like people to think about and reflect on.
0: Yeah, and on that same note, I mean. Darlene mentioned white fragility and so much of that is an entitlement to racial comfort. And it seems like for certain folks, any conversation about race leads to being defensive yeah. and that sort of, and that leads to what you're talking about, where like the scarcity mentality of like, well, if, if X, then I'm going to lose Y. Yeah, And I think that what the last month hopefully has caused for many folks is more conversation about race and the more we engage in these conversations the less we start to feel maybe we get comfort in the discomfort and that will help us open our minds and lose some of that that negative reaction because it's a privilege to not have to engage in thoughts about race um for the portion of your day
2: someone can just decide they're not going to have any more conversations about it today but i don't get to stop being black um the author, Ijuoma Oluo, who has written the book "So you Want to Talk about Race," which I believe right now is top of the chart from the New York Times, mm-hmm. um she has a great list of some basic tips that can increase your racial conversation success, I guess what we can call it. Um, so I just wanted to summarize some of those so that might be helpful to your listeners. Um, so first is stating your intentions and you know, why are you having this conversation? Do you know why this matters to you? Like, what are you trying to communicate or understand? I think sometimes you get um, some conflicts with people are coming from two different places in terms of, or trying to have two different conversations and not lining up. Uh, her second tip is to remember what your top priority in the conversation is and don't let your emotions override it. So if your top priority is understanding racism better, don't let the top priority then become avenging your wounded pride if the conversation has you feeling defensive. Doing your research, so if you're going to talk about an issue you're not familiar with, doing a a quick search can help save a a lot of time. It's never, she says that it's never anyone's job to be your personal Google. And I mean, I have had people just write to me saying, you know, how do I be an ally? You have the power of the internet at your fingertips, and I am a stranger. (laughs) Do the work yourself. Um, Don't make your anti-racism argument oppressive against other groups. So that's something that uh, she notes. Another tip is when you start to feel defensive, so this one's particularly important. When you start to feel defensive, stop and ask yourself why. So she says, if you're talking about race and you suddenly feel the need to defend yourself vigorously, stop and you ask yourself, what is being threatened here? Why am I thinking, what am I thinking this conversation says about me? And has my top priority shifted to preserving my ego? And so if you're too heated to answer the questions, she suggests that you, Step away for a few minutes, catch your breath, calm down so that you can. And she says it stops us from hearing the things that need to be said and stops us from saying what we really need to say. And a few other things are don't tone police, So don't make and don't require that people make their discussions on the racial oppression they they face comfortable for you. This is something that often happens. Um, People will get more upset about your tone than about the actual racism that happens to you. Watch how many times you're saying I or me when you're talking about it. Systemic racism is not just about the individual, it's about the system. And then ask yourself, am I trying to be right or am I trying to do better? And a conversation should never be about race, should never be about winning. Um, It should be uh, that you're in this to share and learn and to do better and be better. So some tips on how
1: to have conversation about race from the wonderful Ujuoma Oluo. I love that, and another book that I, I you may have introduced it to me. I, I can't remember where I came across it, but it's called "Me and White Supremacy." a yeah,
2: sad book,
1: yes, fantastic book. Mm-hmm. I would highly recommend that one on this podcast too, just because. And I'll throw something in just to add something to what you just said. That's those are the tips for the the conversation about race. I think what the what Layla Saad's book does is it shows you you need to think about your own role more deeply. And I found that some of them were very shocking, even to me, who I would consider that I, I think really deeply about this topic. But here's an example, or there's a, a chapter on dealing with white superiority. And you're like, I'm, I don't think that. But then here are some of the examples she gives. Primarily buying from and working with white entrepreneurs and service providers, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Primarily reading books by white authors primarily learning from and supporting white leaders, whether political or non-political, primarily staying on the white side of town. And then something that I've seen a lot on social media is primarily having white voices in your feeds on socials. These are things that as soon as you see those in print, you realize that you're not in the conversation about race today. You're not thinking about it actively if those are things that speak to you. For example, and she has 10 or 15 chapters full of stuff like that that's just practical. Um, yeah. So I think I think that's another one to to throw in for for anyone trying to work with it deeply. Yep, it's one of it's one of my top five that okay. I give to people. Well, we should put your top five in the show notes for people. Yeah. So we'll get them from after the episode and we'll list them because I, I think it's part of the education. We're talking a lot about uh, white supremacy, white superiority. What do you say to non-white listeners who also have to deal with the issue of anti-black racism?
2: I mean, I think the same books and resources are useful for you as well. There's anti black racism even within the black community. Like, you know, no one is really immune from this. You know, we have our own issues with massage noir and colorism and so I think it's just you will have your own experiences as people of color, but they will be different from black and indigenous voices in Canada. And I think that you also have a duty to learn. And any progress that we make that helps Black and Indigenous people will help you too. So, to me, it's like a win-win situation helping someone else, but there will be spillover effects in helping uh, your community as well.
0: I'm just curious in in the last month, just uh, in your every in, in your in your normal experiences, have you seen great examples of people rising to this challenge, or examples uh, that that you've seen that you'd be you able maybe encourage people to stay away from practicing.
2: Yeah. I had a real issue with the whole black out Tuesday situation. Hmm. So for those that don't know, that was when people were posting black squares in their feeds on a Tuesday on Instagram. And I found it really hard when I saw people who had been completely silent on the issue up until then, and then posting this Black Square, it felt very performative to me. I wasn't sure what the purpose was. Also, it seemed like the original intent of the day was to give space to Black people and Black creators. So I wasn't sure how taking up space with the Black Square achieved that method. And to me, it was just another example of people just not really thinking deeply about the issues. Like, what is this doing? Is this, What effect do I intend for this to have? Is it going to have that effect? You know, I ended up spending half of my day messaging people in my feed, because some people, A, had tagged the Black Lives Matter hashtag in it, which was a problem for organizers. So I asked people to take out that, repost without that hashtag if they were going to post. And then I actually was like, no, why, why are you posting this? What is this supposed to, to say or do? So just making sure that your allyship isn't performative and that it's real and you're doing things that are lasting long lasting not just like a one off and then going back to picture, paint, uh, posting pictures of of trees or whatever you choose to post on your instagram so anti racism actions are things that we'll have to you'll have, probably have to do for your whole life because i don't think we're going to get rid of racism in my lifetime i don't even know if we'll get rid of it in my if i have any kids in any, my kids lifetime it's a system that's been entrenched for hundreds of years and it's going to take a long time to undo. And so just knowing that this isn't just a, a one off flash in the pan and, and that if you know if you're taking sun, you you are committing to examining your life and changing your the way you think do things, the way you think about things, hopefully permanently.
0: And is there a specific role for lawyers in all this?
2: I mean, I think lawyers have the ability to comment more critically on the justice system. Um for example, speaking up about who gets appointed to the judiciary, speaking up about helping people interpret laws and and interpret some of the the legal aspects of the justice system. Uh, You know, making sure that let's say you're a crown or you're someone in defense that you are well-educated in issues of anti-blackness and anti-black racism, things like knowing about things like the sentencing project uh, which helps to write sentencing reports with people of color. So right? the Sentencing and Parole Project they prepare enhanced pre-sentence reports for Black people who are marginalized by poverty and racial inequality. Um, but just knowing that you know, as lawyers, we are seen as more authoritative, more authoritative when it comes to issues related to justice, and people might listen to your voice more. So um, using that ability and that privilege uh, for good. I mean, I, for one, feel like we need to completely revamp our policing and prison system. I know like half of the people who are currently incarcerated in Ontario jails are there on awaiting their sentence. They haven't actually been convicted of anything. And does that really reduce crime? Does it reduce crime for us to have a system that holds people and doesn't let them improve their lives? or address any of the situations that might have gotten them into trouble and um, just helping, helping other people sort of think about justice and think about equality, given our
1: own knowledge of, of how the law operates. I find too that even Mike and I do a lot of work with um, startups and, and companies and the opportunity does present itself to just take a more kind of ethical like the lawyer is often the ethical voice in the room or the person who says this is something that while perhaps not a legal issue, we should build awareness of or Yeah. I, I find that we're trusted advisors sometimes and if yeah. we're educated, we can we can not facilitate stuff on our watch that shouldn't be facilitated as well.
0: So, uh, just before I ask you our, our final question, and then we go to a break, and we'll do our goods and gripes. I do want to. We want to thank you for your time again. We'll be making a donation to the Black Legal Action Center because in, in thanks for you to to come on board and to make sure that we're honoring our commitment to make change. And that is a nonprofit community legal clinic that provides free legal services for low or no income Black residents of Ontario. And as well, you're encouraging folks to donate to the Sentencing and Parole Project. And more information can be found at sentencingproject.ca. So, Hadia, what would be, if you had a big idea to change law, what would that big idea be?
2: I would like us to change to a model of punishment, I guess not punishment, that is restorative and not punitive. I think if we really want to, we want to attack the roots of crime and, and help people get out of them a system or a cycle, and I think there are much better ways to do it than locking people away, not giving them any educational support, any mental health support, um, not helping them overcome any of the trauma that may have led them to be there. You know, we overcriminalize the mentally ill, and and prisons are expensive. Like if we really want to help society and to better society, this is not a good use of our money. So, to me, really revamping the prison industrial complex is, is our number one goal. I leave, you with, I leave you with the heavy things.
0: You know, <laughs> no. And <if> <laughs> That's great. And it's good to do that because we're going to come back with some super light stuff with our goods and grace. So, we'll be right back after this. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I N T E R A L I A law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support, and gripes are things that annoy us. So, uh, Hadiah, good? Gripe?
2: Good is the book I referenced, so you want to talk about race. Also, puzzles. Puzzles are good and are available in your independent bookstore. Bookstores are a great purveyor of puzzles. And puzzles are great pandemic activities. So, highly recommend both Idioma Oluo. So, you want to talk about race and the simple jigsaw puzzle?
0: <laughs> That's so good.
2: <laughs> do you want my gripe right away too? How does this work?
0: Let's do it. Oh yeah. Do, we do
2: all or do we do all of our good yeah. and then all of our gripes? I mean, go. The possibilities are endless. You're on a roll. Go. My real gripe this week was a pineapple that wasn't ripe when I cut into it.
1: <sighs> it was
2: <a> Really <laughs> devastating. I really wanted to put pineapple on my pizza. I know there are some people who don't believe in that. <laughs> You're wrong. Pineapple <laughs> belongs on pizza. Pineapple is also excellent on tacos. You grill the pineapple, folks, and mm-hmm. for your tacos. And so, yeah, I was really mad when I cut into that pineapple and it was not as ripe as I wanted
0: to
1: be.
2: So, if anybody can help a girl out and tell me how to crack that mystery, when it's because either I cut into it way too late and it's bad or I cut into it too early and it's not good. And I can't find that spot.
1: So, I would be very surprised if Mike doesn't know the tip on pineapples. Do you know the tip?
2: I mean, I smelled it. It smelled ready. <laughs> I pulled the leaves, but no, it was not ready to go. It okay. Was it was a fun thing. pineapple. It was.
0: <laughs> that is a Those gripe. are perfect goods and grapes, by the way. They, yeah. You could not have been more on the nose. Yes. Um, I feel like mine will be insignificant now. Darlene, do you have any good I believe in
1: you, Mike. I believe in you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Hidea.
1: I feel he can do it. I was going to recommend that Me and White Supremacy book. I really think it is a must read. So that was going to be my good. And just the, uh, I guess my gripe, just to stay on topic, is just to uh, to Hadiyah's point, just that this has to be such a lift on the learning piece. I would love to see this. Uh, my gripe, I guess, is I want to see this taught in schools. I want to see people learning about it from day one. My son and I watched the CNN Sesame Street town hall on racism and uh, on anti-racism. And he, I think it, it mattered to him that the characters were talking and stuff. Like, I think there's a way to teach this very early. He's very young. But uh, I, I feel like we kind of gloss over it a little bit more than kids can handle. That would be my gripe.
0: I watched a, a great comedy special. Two nights ago, uh, it's Hannah Gadsby's new special. She did Nanette a couple years ago. That was that big groundbreaking comedy special. Uh, Her new one's called Douglas, and it's super clever. She tells everybody what she's about to do. Like the first five minutes is she's like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. And you're still, and it's really good device for humor. And she is great. And she's a great queer voice, and it's Pride Month. So not the reason to promote, but certainly a, a secondary reason to promote the special as well. So that would be my good. My gripe is, I mentioned this to D- D- Darlene before, but I'm currently in a small battle with the person who picks up my garbage. Uh, <laughs> he <laughs> thinks that my garbage bags have been too heavy. And so I've literally taken to weighing them before putting them on the corner. Oh uh, my and, God, you uh, <laughs> didn't mention that part. <laughs> yeah, because I, I have to get it gone. I mean, I got to get rid of this garbage. Uh, so <laughs> hopefully this week it will go well. Mm. Uh, and that's it. That's a silly grip on my side. Anyway, uh, okay, so uh, Hadia, any last words? Just uh, just
2: be better, do better. We can all be better and do better.
1: Agreed.
0: Yeah. Agreed. And- Agreed.
1: Thank you so much for all of your work on this topic and for helping enlighten and educate us. And for the other, I know you're talking on this and a lot of people ask you to speak, as Mike said in the intro. So we very much appreciate your time. And we hope that if, uh, if you want to, Come back onto the pod in the future. That obviously we'd always be happy to have you. You can have me and Catherine together. Catherine is actually my my career coach. Oh, yes. I'm, very, so I'm very lucky. You know, like we love the we love Catherine Chang.
2: Everybody <laughs> loves Catherine Chang. How could you not love Catherine Chang? Oh, she's my favorite. <laughs> and, um, just like I feel like you leave every interaction with Catherine Chang just feeling like warm and glowy, and like you are a like, Unicorn yeah. goddess, who can accomplish anything? She's just, just the best. Yeah.
0: She is. The I once we, we meant to have coffee. We set like at thirty minutes of our day to have coffee together, and it was like over two hours by the time it was all done. Yeah, um, she's yeah, fantastic. fantastic. Totally understand that. Well, I would be <laughs> absolutely.
2: This just became the Katherine Chang Appreciation Show. Thank you I'll all talk... for joining us.
1: <laughs> yes, That's, that would be good. I mean, I'm sure there's a t- there are topics that would that would be great. Yeah, this is a great idea. You've, you've given us a a new, new idea. Okay. Well, thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Cool. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget. We love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.